it was a dark and stormy night in the season of Aquarius. But downtown Berkeley, in a warm and cozy monastery, the Dharma was flowing deep. Thank you all for making the effort to come out on such a stormy night. What sincerity you show. Folks said uh, first Thursday, it's good to talk about some of the, the rudiments of meditation. And there are real experienced meditators here as well. So how to thread that through to, to hit the right note. And I wanted to share something that maybe you all wouldn't expect when you think about meditation, unless you come to the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and then you say, well, that's what he always talks about. We've learned to expect that from him. Uh, my name is Hung Shur. I'm the, the director here, and I've been a Buddhist monk now for 34 years, and that's not so easy when you come from Toledo, Ohio. Right? <laughs> well, there aren't all that many monks from Toledo, Ohio, and downtown Berkeley, you know. Uh, but there are some. That's, that's the point. So um, what is that thing that he always talks about uh, when it comes time to talk about meditation? And that's about relationships. You mean he's not going to talk about emptiness? He's not going to talk about enlightenment? Well, yes, but in the context of relationships. So let's put some flesh and blood on that. And give you a surprising statistic. If you poke around in the Chinese Mahayana, which is the tradition of Buddhism that I study, it's also called the Northern tradition, what you discover from the earliest Indian records through China and then on to Japan and Korea and Vietnam, which is where that side of the Mahayana spread, what you discover is that the men and women who woke up, which is a word I prefer to use, the verb I prefer to use over enlightenment, which has already become a buzzword. Enlightenment is already out there in the marketplace. It's something you get, you know. And I'll take a dozen, you know. Can I get the economy size, you know? <laughs> I want a big enlightenment. I want to customize enlightenment. Uh, supersize my enlightenment. <laughs> it's a buzzword. So if you say wake up, which is actual root of bud, the Sanskrit word which means to wake up, and Buddha is a title. It's not the name of of Shakyamuni, it means awakened one, one who woke up, a human, a person who woke up, not an avatar. And that word has new resonance these days, doesn't it? Yeah. Not a god, 
not an alien or extraterrestrial, but a very human flesh and blood person. What you discover is people who woke up had a very surprising behavior after their awakening, by and large. And this is a remarkable number of people who are, quote, you know, awakened sages, enlightened beings. What they do is go looking for their parents. And that includes if they're now in their 60s and 70s and their parents have passed on. They go looking all the same using spiritual vision that is part of that awakened experience. So how funny, story after story of the Chan masters, the Zen masters, has an episode of going to repay their parents' kindness. How funny, how unexpected that that would be the case. What you discover is that so many of these folks are what you call in the Asian tradition, a very familiar term, filial children. In Chinese, they call them xiaozi, xiao ni shanan, filial children, men and women, meaning people who appreciate the roots they stand on and understanding that they don't get enlightened, they don't come awake on their own. In fact, that awakening is the result of intense layers of conditions, mostly of giving from the parents down. So, interesting, interesting point. And you can name them, Mahamad Gayayana, who is known in the Theravada tradition as Mogalan. Uh, He's a famous filial child. He was the Buddha's disciple foremost in psychic powers. And the first thing he did upon awakening was look for mom. He was, apparently dad was not so easy to find. His mom had passed on and she was suffering. She hadn't gone on to a wholesome rebirth. And so he went to the Buddha and found a way to repay her kindness. And the resulting story is a folktale told throughout Asia as Ulambana. In Japan, it became Obon Matsuri, which is a huge cultural festival. Um, it's, it's a story that launched operas, fiction, plays, folktales, songs, etc. So he's just one of the most famous and one of the earliest. Throughout China, filial children are are synonymous with enlightened, awakened people. My teacher, the, the monk who founded this monastery, the late Master Xuanhua, when his mother died, sat by her grave for three years to repay her kindness, from age 19 to age 21. And then went on to become a monk. And his teacher did the same only for both parents. When his mother died three years and his father died three years. Now that's, you know, can you imagine staking yourself out at Forest Lawn Seminary or Cemetery? You know, it's like you get arrested for being filial. And it's not something we do. We're not accustomed to that. So interesting way of understanding the roots of humanity. So I thought I would start tonight 
by inviting you to um, to exercise some a group ex to join a group exercise where we share breath, singing. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to join me and sing like this. Thank you to the universe. Thank you to the earth and sky. I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. That's your part. Thank you to the universe. Thank you to the earth and sky. Thank you to the earth and sky. I may not repay my parents' kindness. I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. Here we go. People ask me, what did you get from your meditation? Are you enlightened? Have you ended your frustration? The wise men and women who woke up, all those I reviewed, say the highest state is a wish to repay a heart of gratitude. Here we go, your turn. Thank you to the universe. Thank you to the earth and sky. I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. How many years did I waste waiting for my prize, for my ship to finally come in, for my payoff? To arrive, Clear, publisher's clearing house. Right? But happiness comes not from getting, but from giving it all away. Sages say, once you see the Tao, you find you feel a wish to repay. Join me. Thank you to the universe. Thank you to the earth and sky. I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. Replace parents with planet. I may not repay the planet's kindness, but Every day I try. Teachers, I may not repay my teacher's kindness, but every day I try. Parents, I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. So that's the principle. And how funny, right? Who would think that these enlightened teachers, you'd think, you know, what would they do? Would they um, 
buy a lot of Apple stock right away, probably? How, how enlightened does, do you have to be? Uh, would they go down to Bay Meadows and, or buy the horse ticket, or what would they do? Mm -hmm. Funny, they go to repay parents' kindness. But that's the first priority for awakened beings. So it seems. Interesting. What do they know that we don't? Huh. Okay. Now, um, I'm going to uh, do something even more unexpected than monk monks playing guitars. Now, that's pretty unexpected, but <laughs> I'm going to do something even more startling. Are you ready? So, um, I'm going to tell a story that arose right here in James's Thursday night group about, might have been 12 years ago, because you know, you've been coming for 15. How about that? Welcome. It's our honor. What a treat to, to know that this has been, to know that this has been home for so many people's finding contemplation, finding mindfulness, finding First of all, that we have a mind. Second of all, that we can chase our mind's patterns and we can discover that the, that the inner life is, has, a, has a blueprint, has a map. That's joyful. Um, and to be part of that has been a great pleasure for us, for the staff here at the Berkeley Monastery. So this is a true story and it came from, uh, once James said, uh, will, you take, uh, will you take the Thursday night group twice this month, beginning and at the end? And he said, um, you know, we've been coming already for four or five years, every week, every week, and uh, you even turn the heat on for us. I mean, imagine, we go all out, you know? <laughs> We don't, we don't heat the place unless you're here, so thank you very much for coming. Otherwise, we wouldn't turn the heat on. So uh, he said, we want to do something to repay you. What would you do? And I said, I got the answer. I got the answer. Let me speak Thursday night, and I'll come up with a topic. And that's, that's the deal. And he said, okay, sounds good. So I said, here's what I want you all to do. I want everybody here to, ex to, to do a two- uh, do a, an experiment that spans two, two weeks, not consecutive, but beginning and end of the month, four weeks. And I want you to go into your world and find a significant elder. Find any significant elder. If you're blessed to have folks still alive and we're aging and that's not so easy anymore, then go talk to mom or dad or both. If your mom or dad happened to be here tonight, blessings on you. What a joy. Um, if you don't, suppose mom and dad have traveled on. Then what about a grandparent? You might have a grandparent. What about a godparent? What about an aging neighbor? There are so many elders in our world 
whose kids have moved on, separated, lost touch, who just aren't here, call on Christmas and Easter, and who would be so thrilled to have you, a younger person, go to them and say, and here's, this was the deal, go find that significant elder, and as a meditator, more than once, once is easy, twice is even harder, go to them and say, you know, I've been kind of getting in touch with my mind and with the roots of my character and my meditation. And I realize that wisdom isn't all that easy. Wisdom comes with age and experience. And you're farther down that road than I am, and I realize that I'm going to have to come up with my own answers, for better or for worse. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing some stories or tips that you've gained along the way so I could get some more wisdom. Say that to your significant elder. And I said, if they say to you, no, I'm not interested, you've found a very depressed elder. <laughs> Most elders will say, well, how nice of you to ask. Come on in. Would you like some tea? I'd love to talk. Right? And do that and listen. And you can say, you know, I've been meditating a little bit, and, and I'm interested in, in what you can teach me. Because life's journey requires wisdom. Yeah. So if you can do that twice, you will have, number one, enriched your life. And two, you will have made an elder very happy. Somehow, in the busy whirl of things, we overlook that so often. We just don't think to do that. And now, as I say that, I understand, I understand that many of us have wounded history. And our, that particular elder is the last person you'd go looking for wisdom. I know that that is true for some of us. However, lots and lots of lonely elders who would be thrilled, thrilled to have you just come and ask. And then listen really carefully. And you'll get stories that will just melt your heart. So what I was going to do, that I said is a little unusual, more unusual than a monk playing a guitar, is tell a true story that arose from the second, the end of the month when we came back. And I said, OK, now you've all been out found your significant elder and listened to the stories, who would like to share? <laughs> Room was full like this. No hands went up. I said, well, nobody? Someone said, well, uh, actually, Reverend Hungshur, we don't have any significant elders in our lives. And I said, oh? Is that true for everybody? Well, four hands went up. Out of 60, 70 folks, four hands went up. And the story that you're about to hear is one of those stories.
Mommy, there's a lot of people here. Don't be scared. Mommy, they're all looking at me. It's okay, honey. Mommy, bedtime, would you tell me a story? Hmm. What story would you like to hear, dear? You know the meditation story. The same one. I want the story. I want the meditation story, Mommy. All right. Well, you want the story about how I learned to meditate? Yeah, and the one how you got back together with Grandma. OK, dear. Mm, are you snuggled in and ready to listen? Ready. All right. Now, remember how it goes. Back before I really learned how to meditate, I used to struggle with your grandma all the time. Now, there would be a fade out if this were. Playing the role of grandma. <coughs> what? Grandma used to have this song that she would sing every time she saw me, her daughter. And that song was really hard to listen to. You know what's wrong with you? I'll tell you what's wrong with you. Everything is wrong with you. Your wings, your breath, you don't floss, you're flying, your posture, there's nothing really right with you at all. I just heard that all day long until I thought I would explode. I just couldn't take it anymore. She just nagged me, nagged me, nagged me. You know, she's nagging. She just wanted me to be better and better. Maybe she was projecting her own insecurities. But <laughs> as a daughter, I found it impossible to take. I wasn't a meditator. I moved out. Nag, 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 nag. So I moved away, and I never looked back. Of course, of course I missed her, because a daughter needs her mom. But what could I do? Then one day. I learned to meditate, and things changed. I really liked it. I got acquainted with my mind and its habits. I started to recognize my thought patterns. I watched my thoughts rise and fall, rise and fall. <laughs> I learned mindfulness, and I realized that occasionally I had wisdom. Compassion was growing right in my heart. But you know, I still felt something was missing. Then I heard the monk at the monastery say that repaying parents' kindness was the source of virtue, that virtue was inherent. And the Buddha, the one who woke up, is greatly virtuous. All his virtue is complete, and it came from inside. Who knew? Nobody lacks it. 
It's just like gold in the ground, but you've got to dig it up and cultivate it. You've got to smelt it. Then it's pure. Well, that made sense. I thought of my mom. <laughs> I decided it had been long enough. So I looked for her phone number. I had to dig for it, but I found it. Ten years had gone by, and I gave her a call. I heard the phone ring, and I heard my mom's voice. Louise, is that you? Is it really you? You know what's wrong with you? <laughs> you never call me. That's what's wrong with you. As soon as I heard her voice, I thought, Mom, you're so cute, you never change. I'm coming over to see you. So I heard her break into tears as I hung up the phone. So I decided to go right over. And I walk the 10 blocks, because you know, I only live <laughs> 10 blocks away. And I knocked on the door. And what a surprise to see that after 10 years, my mom seemed to have shrunk. You know, or maybe I'd grown. Or maybe it was the meditation working. But I looked at her, and first thing she said to me was, you know what's wrong with you? You never come see me. That's what's wrong with you. And I thought, oh, my mom is so cute. So we hugged, and we talked all night. And I decided to move in with her. <laughs> Test your credibility. So fade out. I just love that story, Mom. But that's not all. After I moved in, of course it wasn't easy, but I discovered that because of my meditation, I learned patience. And when I got frustrated, at mom's old habits, I just practiced mindfulness, rising, falling. I just observed my thoughts. And I realized that my mom was a human. <laughs> or a dragon. She had issues. And somehow, because I watched my mind, I realized that I had power over my mind. I didn't have to be afraid. Mom was just mom, just like me. Mom, you're not a human. You're my mom. You're sweet, dear. But something amazing happened. As I continued to meditate and live with my mom, what I saw was now when I meditated, my whole body was warm. Who would have thought that the 10 years that I separated from my mom, my heart had turned to a block of ice. Once I moved in, all my circulation connected. And when I sat 
that missing feeling was gone. My whole body warmed up. My meditation connected inside, and as my wisdom grew, I could be more patient with my mom. And now, she meditates with me. <laughs> mom, I love that story. Now will you go to sleep, dear? Mommy, will you tell it again? <laughs> Shh, time to meditate, dear. All right, you heard it here for the very first time in downtown Berkeley history. Aren't these great? Okay, true story. Now, what's the principle? True story. Principle being that the, um, in the Chinese tradition they say that trees stand on their roots. People stand on the roots that are their parents. If you think of all the different trees in the forest, they all draw on the same groundwater. Eucalyptus, redwoods, oaks, spruce, scrub trees, they all draw from that same water. And people do the same. The, in, in my Chinese tradition, they talk about the bodhisattva path a lot. Bodhisattvas are awakened beings. And the goal, they say, of a life of meditation is not so much quote, enlightenment. The word that they use is wisdom. Specifically, prajna, prajna wisdom. And that wisdom sees through the surface. It sees through the surface of situations. You know what to do. Because you go past what meets the eyes and ears and emotions to the deeper principle. You connect acorn to oak tree. You connect root to branch tip. Likewise, you see a leaf and you understand the root. They say that's the function of prajna wisdom, is to see through the surface. When you apply that prajna wisdom, that's only half of it, they say. The other half of real awakening is seeing through the surface and realizing that everybody's connected. Not just everybody, but every sentient creature. This is decidedly a non-homocentric. That's not a human-centered vision. So great compassion is that understanding of the deeper connection. 
so if all trees, in fact all plants, are drinking from the same groundwater, then all humans are connecting to some sort of deeper nourishment, some taproot. And those awakened beings describe it that way. They really do genuinely see that people are connected. It's not a warm and fuzzy. It's an actual vision of the sameness, starting with the earth, air, fire, and water that makes up the body. Those four fundamental elements are true in whales, they're true in mosquitoes. And then there's something inside that, from the Buddhist perspective, is called the Buddha nature. They say that's shared entirely, without any deviation. So, if the goal of a life of meditation is to wisdom and compassion, prajna and karuna in Sanskrit, and that those two things are the palm and the back of the hand, the wisdom sees through the superficial differences. And when you get there, what you discover is there's no difference at the core. Then you think, how do I connect to that root? How do I put my roots down to what, milk of human kindness? Whatever, you know, we have phrases for it. That absolute identity. The Chinese call it tong ti da bei, same body, great compassion. How do you find that? The answer that the Mahayana tradition says is you go through your flesh and blood parents first because they are your actual physical connection to the family tree. Now, does that mean specifically it's got to be your mom and your dad? What if you didn't know your dad? What if you had multiple dads or your mom? You weren't, you were estranged from your mom. What to do about that? The principle is still there. So, why am I talking about this in a meditation class? It's because When we come to sit, many of us get a sense of calm, a sense of stepping aside from the rush. When we sit longer, what we discover is that our, our eyes are running out to connect the sights, our ears are running out to connect the sounds. Same is true of nose, tongue, body, and the mind loves to connect and attach to dharmas, to objects of the mind. The six senses connect to the six sense objects. And until we sit still, we don't realize that, that we have some choices, that we can actually catch those six senses running out and transform them, pull them back and find some freedom from sense stimuli. As we do that, we have a deeper, deeper sense of, hey, you know, where, what else is available inside? 
pretty soon, like my illustration, and I say that story arose from the experiences people had after talking to their elders. Uh, the woman who told that story said, gee, something about your giving us that challenge was just, the timing was just right, you know? I was ready, I guess, to go reconnect with mom. What we discover is that if we don't put our next step in meditation past that sense of calm and well-being and kind of exploring our connections to our senses and the world around us, if we don't go into that rootedness that is our fundamental relationships, that meditation stays fairly superficial, that it's good, but how do I go deeper? How do I take the next step? The answer in the Chinese Mahayana, in the Chinese tradition, with the Chan tradition, which in Japan became the Zen tradition, was the word virtue. And the word precepts. Okay, precepts sound scary to some of us. Certainly did to me when I first heard this idea. Precepts often sounds like somebody wants to limit my fun. Somebody wants to make sure that meditation is a painful experience, right? That it's just, it's doer, it's sour, it's, you know, not. The next step, according to the Buddha, is a step backwards because the fundamental Buddhist formula that is true for Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana is Shila Samadhi Prajna. When Ajahn Pasano, Ajahn Amaro, Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Sujito are here, they say, Sila Samadhi Panya, right? We've heard that. When Betsy Rose sings for you, she sings about Sila Samadhi Panya. Sila Samadhi Prajna is the Sanskrit way of pronouncing the Pali. Precepts, concentration, and wisdom. Who you are, how you transform and turn your senses, and then the insights that arise is the fundamental Buddhist formula. Those are called the three techniques, the three sciences, the three studies that no longer outflow into samsara. That's the road to nirvana, to birth and death, to freedom over mortality that the Buddha attained. Fundamental teaching, shila samadhi prajna. We, when we come in to sit on Thursday night, and whenever you do your sitting at home and alone, is the second step, the samadhi step, the calming, the contemplating, the observing, the watching, rising, and falling. Okay, you want it to go deeper. What do we do? The Buddha's answer was, look at what we do with our body, our mouth, and our mind when we're not meditating. That will determine how your meditation goes and the insights that will arise from your stillness that you get. In other words, character is the word. Your personhood, how you behave. And the Buddha said, here are five guidelines from my own experience that will help you along the path. Five things that, should you ignore them, you'll find that your meditation gets obstructed. He said, here's what they are. These are the traditional 
Panchasila, the five precepts. He said, if you want your meditation to take that next step, if you want to go deeper and have your practice really connect with your walking, standing, sitting, and lying down, watch these things. Don't kill. Ahimsa instead. Harmlessness. Live with a kind, nurturing attitude to all living beings. Number two, he said, don't steal. In other words, pay attention to the things that support that first precept, which is life itself. That would be material. What's your attitude towards material? He said, be generous. Instead of, who's got a 3GS iPhone? My eyes go right to it. Oh, my old 3G iPhone, you know, and the iPad, okay. So he said, your attitude towards material is next. If your eyes and mind are running out looking at what's good to get, that greed that results will obstruct your sitting. Number three, he said, relationships, particularly sexual relationships. He said, if your constantly discontent, if you're always looking past the relationship you have to another relationship, particularly outside the boundaries of marriage, he said, you're going to obstruct your own meditation. It's hard to be still when you're wondering, how could she say that to me? Or, mm, wait till it sits over, I'm going to go introduce myself to him, to her. You, know. you need to Turn that energy back if your meditation is going to go deeper. So sexual misconduct was the third precept. The fourth is speech. He said, if you want your meditation to go deeper, watch the way you interact in society. Watch the impact of your words on the people around you. Are they truthful? Do you have that integrity? If so, when you say it, it's trustworthy, it's gone. If you say it and it's dishonest, what happens? You gotta check, who did you say it to? Do you have to cover, do you have to tell again so that they might have heard that you got, but that it wasn't true, you better cover, who did they hear? And as a result, on the still waters of the mind, these ripples go out, why? Because the words that issued from you, or you can lie with behavior, or an omission, not telling the whole, those things will disturb the stillness of your mind. And the last one is intoxicants. Real meditators tend to get pretty sober. Because why? It's hard enough to control it, isn't it? Without adding substances that make it murkier. I, I'm a Scorpio with a Pisces moon. I have lots and lots of water in my horoscope. And I found that one bottle of beer would stay with me for days. <laughs> I could feel it, and I knew when it was gone. You know, and I was really sensitive to substances. And after you sit for a while, you see the water in there. It's really nice to be able to see all the way to the bottom. So, killing, mm-mm, kindness, harmless. Stealing, uh-uh, generous instead. Sexual misconduct, nah, truthful not promiscuous, right? Straight, true to your promises, keep your promises. 
not lying. Number four, honest instead. No intoxicants, but clear instead. The Buddha said those are five things, all considered precepts, all part of this virtuous life, that when you meditate, avoiding those mistakes, you'll find it goes deep. It goes really deep. And the result will be insight, which is the prajna part. You'll be able to see right through situations that before would have confused you. Something you have to, you have to choose. So here it comes and you go, oh, it's just that. It's just that. I see that. I've seen that before. Yeah, that's a pattern. It, try this. And it works. Things work out. Because why? You've got genuine stillness, genuine samadhi, that state of concentration and purity that allows you to see right through the surface to the principle inside. So that's the result of, as I say, the virtue word that helps when you've got that connection, that peace of mind, that melting of the ice that the dragon mommy said happened after she reconnected with mom. So these are all parts of virtue. The traditional definition of virtue in the, the Mahayana was filiality, fraternity, called the eight virtues. Xiao, Ti, Zhong, Xin, Li, Yi, Lian, Shi. Those are the eight. Filiality, that sense of reconnecting with kindness, repaying kindness, sometimes at a distance, a little bit of distance, kinds of lubricates filial kindness sometimes, you know. You don't have to live at home. Sometimes just calling every day, you know, is better. So, but that sense of reconnecting and standing on those roots like a tree stands tall, that allows the meditation to connect. So that's the model. What do you think? Now that I've given you the model, anybody have comments? Anybody not have questions? Anybody care to share the questions that you've got? How about that? So my first statement was, talking about meditation around here, he always says the same thing, relationship. How funny, right? And I grew up in Toledo. I got the car keys at 16. I was out of there just like the rest of us, right? I drove away as fast as I could. Only when I came back and sat still did I realize that what was coming up was scenes of my absolutely unfilial behavior to my folks. Times I'd scolded my mom and dad profoundly because they grounded me, right? Just scenes from childhood were floating up into my consciousness the longer I sat still. How surprising until I realized that it was my humanity wanting to connect with my roots and go beyond them to great compassion to connect with all beings. But until I cleaned out that closet, I couldn't get there. That kept coming up over and over. Who knew? Until I found that principle, I thought maybe that's what's going on. Okay, I'm going to wait until somebody says something. Anybody want to provide counter evidence or tell a story about if Sumaya was here, she could tell us about her experience. Bill Porter, uh, John Porter. John Porter was told a very interesting story. 
I'll tell you one more of these stories. John said, he was one of the five who raised their hands that night. So I don't see John here. John said, get on retreat. I think he'll verify that this is an accurate story. He said, you know, when you gave us that assignment, the timing was just right. My dad, my dad belonged to one of those doomsday cults. Yeah, the ones you read about. And the, the guy that he followed, the prophet that he followed, said on such and such a day, they all gathered on the beach down in, near Santa Monica, and they said the sun was not going to rise that morning. That was the end. Guess what? Sun rose, dad's faith was shattered because he, he was a true believer. He was so upset that he moved to a cabin out near Bakersfield at the edge of the desert and sat in his room all day long, cut off relationship. I, he said, after you gave us that assignment, thank you, I spontaneously said, I'm going to go find my dad. I drove down the strangest thing. I knocked on the door without any phone call. He didn't have a phone. I knocked on the door, and he said, John, is that you? And I went and said, Dad, how did you know? He said, well, I've been sitting here. Somehow I knew you've been meditating, right? You suppose you could teach me? I meditated with my dad all week, and we had the best time, and I feel much better about it. And then I decided to move in with him. No, no, he didn't. <laughs> I didn't. John came back. But yeah, no. That would have been a little too good. But he said, you know, a whole new chapter in my relationship with my dad. Funny, huh? Who would think? So I'm here to report that that's what the Chinese monks do. They feel a wish to repay. Monks and men. Hmm, interesting. So now your assignment is, uh, I'm kidding. Um, actually, I will be here with you again. I believe it's this time next month, if I'm not mistaken. James called and said, is it, mm, is it the 11th? Yes, the 11th. I'll be back on the 11th of March. And maybe, I'm not going to lay it down, but maybe somebody might hear it and think, yeah, the time was right. You don't have to move in with her to, be it a good, to make it a good story. But, you know, just let me toss that out, just in case that idea was kind of waiting to sprout. This is the bulb time, right? The bulbs, the irises are starting to pop up. You'll see them in your garden pretty soon. Who knows? Maybe this was the push you needed. Okay, now I have an announcement. Question? Hand up? Yes, ma'am. Where? Ed.
We'll see how much patience you've got. Yeah, yeah. Give her a chair first. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So good. All right. Let us know what happened. All right. Now, Rosemary. Um, I have an announcement, and that is if, if folks would like to hear more about what goes on here at the Berkeley Monastery, Saturday night is a good time to do that. I lecture on sutras every Saturday night, 7.30, right here. We're looking at a sutra called the Abhatamsaka, the Flower Adornment Sutra. It's the sutra that talks about the Bodhisattva path. We go sequentially through it. I'm what's called an exegete. In the world of theology, I do exegesis and been lecturing on sutras since uh, 1980 and uh, still going. So that's a way to find out more about these principles, especially the Bodhisattva path. Um, that's one. Uh, Berkeleymonastery.org is a way to, to do that, to look into it. Also, this is really timely that you're here tonight because I get to tell you about something that's happening tomorrow night at La Peña Cultural Center over on Shattuck. It's called Music That Woke the World, Keeping the Spirit Alive. Did anybody come to our Music That Woke the World concert here last year? Okay, couple brave souls. It's uh, a sing-along concert of songs from the 60s, particularly what used to be called anti-war songs, peace songs, protest songs. We're calling them activist songs. It's four musicians, singer-songwriters. Alan Sanaki from the Berkeley Zen Center. People know Alan. Betsy Rose from Spirit Rock. Melanie Demore, who sang with uh, Sweet Honey in the Rock, and myself, and we're singing those good old songs. Now, judging from the faces I see, most of us are boomers. Okay, so these are those good old songs, your favorites that you forgot that you loved. And when you hear them again, you go, oh man, where did that song go? Those are so wonderful. Young people, 20-somethings, go, oh, where have those songs been? Those songs have juice. Those are great. Now, I will be doing four, and I'll tell you what they are. See if you can name that tune. Yeah, that was quick. Wow. Peter, Paul, and Mary, remember? If I had a hammer, I hammer in the morning. Right? <laughs> now, how many of you know Phil Oaks? Come on and take a walk with me through this green and growing land. Walk through the mountains and the rivers and the sand. That's a non-cynical patriotic song. It really touches the heart of what is good and true about America. About So this is a land full of power and glory. I'll be doing this one. 
Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. And the country I come from is called the Midwest. I was taught and brought up there, laws to abide. And that the land that I live in has God on its side. Remember? Ooh. And then um, I'm going to do one more that. Um, not available in stores. Imagine slicing a firm onion without tears. Right? Right. You won't be late, but you will have to hurry. So that's tomorrow night at La Pena, starting at 8 o'clock. And uh, bring, if only one-third of the folks here tonight arrive, and each of you bring two people, we'll have a full house. Right? Bring your kids or your mom. And, uh, okay. Now, Ordinarily, we would do a dedication of merit to where it's time to stop. Uh, but I'd like to sing one of those songs and let this be our dedication. May the goodness that arises from our practice, right? We can, I'll invite you to sing along with me, those of you who know it. And let this be a way that we share the goodness, sending it out like a broadcast tower from your heart, all right? So here's the dedication of merit. Last night I had the strangest dream I'd ever dreamed before. I dreamed the world had all agreed to put an end to war. I dreamed I saw a mighty room Filled with the women and men. It's okay if you're dated. Nobody cares. We're all boomers, right? And the papers they were signing said they'd never fight again. And when the papers were all signed, and the million copies made. They all joined hands and bowed their heads, and grateful prayers were prayed. And the people in the streets below were dancing round and round. And guns and swords and uniforms were scattered on the ground. Okay, I'll give you a line. You can sing it back. Last night I had the strangest dream. Last night I had the strangest dream I'd ever dreamed. I'd ever dreamed before. I dreamed the world had all agreed. I dreamed the world 
had all agreed to put an end to war. I dreamed I saw a mighty room. I dreamed I saw a mighty room filled with women, filled with women and men, and the papers they were signing. And the papers they were signing said they'd never fight again. When the papers were all signed, and when the papers were all signed, and the million copies made, they all join hands. They all join hands and bowed their heads and grateful prayers were prayed. And the people in the streets below and the people in the streets below were dancing round and round and guns and swords and guns and swords and uniforms were scattered on the ground. Last night I had the strangest dream I'd ever dreamed before. I dreamed the world had all agreed to put an end to war. Isn't that a great song? There will be uh, an entire evening of those at La Pena tomorrow night. Wait till you hear Melanie Demore. She channels Odetta, I swear. She's got the sound and the spirit, and she's just got it. So, And Betsy, as you know, Betsy has been here before. She has a gift of music. Her original songs uh, present a woman's perspective that leaves me just, I melt every single time. She just touches the heart like nothing else. And Alan, Alan Sanaki was in the office at the Widener Library, Widener Library in Columbia University when the police broke through the door and hauled out the protesters who took over the chancellor's office. He was in there, arms locked, singing, we shall not, we shall not be moved, we shall not. So, Alan has got his street cred uh, <laughs> to sing Jody songs. What's that? Jody is not coming for this one. So, but uh, anyway, hope you can be there. All right. Uh, thank you very much for spending this evening with me, and we'll see you again in one month. And I hope you'll be back next week. Blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.